thank you for your great name and all of your wonderful works for you have been so, so very gracious to us and we're thankful for that. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter number 35 and we'll read verses 4 through 8. Isaiah chapter 35 verses 4 through 8. Amen. Verse number four, say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Verse number eight. And an highway shall be there and a way and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. Amen. A highway shall be there. And tonight I want to speak to you for a few moments on the highway of holiness. The highway of holiness. We're going to spend some time on this subject and we'll establish some foundation to it, and this verse is a great place to, to start a highway to holiness. Amen. Lord, we thank you, praise you for your goodness and blessing your word that brings to us encouragement and strength. We ask that you would direct us and give to you many, many thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. This is, when you, when you look at this, this is an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, translated into English. So when you see an English word like highway, you have a modern conception of what it is. And so I wondered exactly what that might be and looked it up in its original tense and wording and definition. And it pretty much means the same thing. Maybe not in terms of engineering and asphalt or concrete and everything else that goes with it. But it does mean a raised road. It is not considered to be a street in the city. It is a raised road. It is above everything else. And there is a thoroughfare that takes place on this highway. It is above what is around and what is below. And this is where God wants to take us. There is going to be a highway to holiness, a place that is raised above everything else. There's a message in that. God elevates us, brings us to a place where we can see things differently. We're not in the lowlands. We're not in the city streets, but he gives to us a highway of holiness. Amen. I'm glad to be on the right road tonight. Amen. I'm not lost. The GPS has not taken me to the wrong spot. I'm in the house of God tonight, and I feel his anointing and his presence in this place. I'm on the highway. Amen. The highway to holiness. Holiness means that something is separated and dedicated. Everyone say separated. Separated and dedicated. Say dedicated. Dedicated. 
means that something is separated and dedicated to God. And those terms mean inwardly and outwardly. So God is separating us from some things, and then we are dedicating ourselves to him in some areas of our life. So it is an inward process, and it is an outward process, this notion of what holiness is. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26 says, And you shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people that you should be mine. When God calls you out, he calls you out of dysfunction. He separates you from the dysfunction. He does not intend for you to stay in the same place that you were in. He intends to take you out of where you were and bring you to a better place. Amen. Bring you not in a ditch, but bring you into a highway. Thank God there were situations in my life that were very circumstantial and not at best. But God picked me up out of that and he elevated me and he placed me on a road that is going somewhere. I'm not going down a road to destruction. They can sing about it all they want. They can say they're on the highway to hell all they want. I want you to know here tonight, I'm on the highway to holiness and it's a better road with a better direction and better end results. Amen. So God separates. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So God is the one that establishes what is holy, and then he calls us to be holy ourselves. I know this is not a popular opinion. we got churches that have lowered the watermark, watered down the message, and want to lower everything to the lowest common denominator to the point where young people are saying, I don't understand why I'm going to church because everybody is acting like everybody else. It's a waste of my time. Praise God. God is calling us to something that is, that is a, a significance and defined by his own holiness, and he calls us to be a holy people. We don't always get it right. We're not perfect, but we're striving for maturity. I'm in the house of God tonight. I'll be honest with you. I have not yet attained, but I'm pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting those things which are behind me. We got to always preach from this pulpit. We can be better. Let's go to another level. Let's be holy as he is holy. Not get dragged down, influenced, and depressed by the world that is around us, but God elevate us to a place and take us to a place that has eternal rewards and benefits. You know what you've got in the house of God tonight? You've got some benefits because you're a child of God. And when you say you're a child of God, that means you reap the rewards and the benefits of God's blessing and God's mercy. If you need encouragement in the house of God tonight, you You've come to the right place because conferred from Calvary to this place here tonight, his power and ability is in this place. Hallelujah. Why don't we just clap our hands first class and thank God. 
forget not all his benefits. I'm not forgetting tonight. I'm not forgetting tonight. Amen. I'm thankful and grateful for his many, many benefits. So that's, that's an introduction, a few verses that make it very, very clear that there is something to be said about the highway to holiness, that God is calling us, he's separating us, and he is dedicating us to the work of God. So let's talk about some of the things that holiness is not. That would be a good place to start. Holiness is not situational. We have people that feel like that ethics is a situational thing. It depends on the time, depends on where you are, depends on who you're with, and so we call that situational ethics. And that can change from day to day, moment to moment, uh, culture to culture, generation to generation. The, the idea of holiness being something that is situational goes against the grain of the scripture because the scripture is not something that is situational. It is truth. It is, it is, it's the difference between a man that builds his house on the rock, Jesus said, and someone that builds their house on the sand. Situational ethics is something that is shifting so much that it doesn't have a firm foundation. But if your house is built on a rock, there is truth there. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, the life, and so he is truth. And so you build yourself on something that defines yourself and gives yourself structure to everything in your world. It's not based on situations. It's built on the truth of his word. It's built on the scripture. This is why the scripture is so very, very powerful. Because if you base things on situations, the wise man said in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You can form in your own mind an opinion and think that's the right direction and the right way, and then compounding voices on top of that can create a narrative that you get sucked into and you think this is the right way. could be the absolute wrong way, and it could be the narrow road and the narrow path that is in fact truth, where the wide, broad way is not something that is truth but is leading you to an illusion. This is why we've got something that is foundational called the word of God that we build our lives, our doctrine, our teaching around. So let's just, since we're talking about situational ethics, let's, let's do a little history just for a few moments. So you have periods, time periods. They're cultural periods. And in every cultural period, there's significance on every platform of it, whether it's literature, different Cultural periods have different literature, and, and the thought process is connected to that, comes out in the writings of people, art, the way they paint, the way that they think, uh, just about every facet and area of life. When you go way back and you find yourself in medieval time periods and the Middle Ages, you find a state that was very closely connected to a church, the Catholic Church, predominantly that created dark ages. People were not reading, they were not literate, and so there, there, beca there became a very controlling, authoritative ability on those governmental structures and those religious structures to dictate what people thought. And this was a very, very dark period. You moved into the Enlightenment period and what have you, you start entering into what is known as the early modern period, the late 1400s, 
to the 1700s. Ironically, what moved us into the early modern period began with the Gutenberg's press, the movable type printing press, and it was characterized this early time by improved transportation, educational reform, and scientific inquiry. And so with the press, now people had access to read, and so they started reading and thinking for themselves, and then that entered into the late modern era, which was the 1700s to the 1900s. So the modern era has, it's broken up in two parts, the early modern era and the late modern period. And in the 1700s to the 1900s, this was sparked by the Industrial Revolution. It was characterized by technical innovations, increasingly secular politics and urbanization. So those structures that were so powerful and so strong during the modern era, when people started to read and think for themselves and understand that reason is something, individualism became something very, very important. I'm endowed by God with a mind to think for myself and I can read. And so you had an explosion of innovation and you had an explosion of realism and enlightenment and reason became very, very, very important in this time period. Uh, so this is where you got, even in philosophy, theology, every cultural period is impacted across the board. For example, uh, in theology during the late modern era where reason became something very, very important during the enlightenment area, where we can think for ourselves, reason became something that was promoted to the point where a lot of the writings, even some of our founding forefathers in the United States of America, that talk about God, they, they did believe in God, but it was an interesting uh, twist because they believed that God was like an absentee landlord. He was one that created everything, but then he left it up to reason to figure out all the details. So they believed that God was transcendent, but they didn't believe that he was imminent. And the imminency was supposed to be done by the intellectual mind, having reason, thinking on your own. And that proliferated. There were innovations, industrial revolution, and this moved right into the postmodern age, which happened around the 1950s to the present time. These are major, major epics of time. The modern era broken up into two, the postmodern era coming out of the medieval era, era and middle ages. So in the postmodern era around the 1950s, there was a shift. And there was a shift because there was a dissatisfaction. There was a dissatisfaction with the modern era, thinking that reason could supply all the answers. And part of the reason for that is we got a lot of stuff that happened in the modern era that was very, very destructive. Humanity with the mind working towards nirvana created a lot of problems. So you had Hitler and you had seven million Jews incinerated. You had Stalin and Marxism and millions upon millions. You had Pol Pot and you had nuclear weaponry, and you had all of this kind of stuff that disenfranchised a lot of people that at some point said there has to be more than this. That brought to us the postmodern age, marked by skepticism, self-consciousness, celebration of differences, and the digitalization 
of culture. That's the 1950s to the present. This postmodernism was a reaction against modernity. Modernity is based on idealism, this utopian vision of human life and society and belief in progress. And when people looked around and said, if that's what progress is, I don't want anything to do with it. And so they started attacking some of those what they considered universal principles of truth formulated by religion or science. And they tried to explain reality in a different way. And so it has many, many faces. It is, I'm talking about postmodernism now, it is anti-authoritarian by nature. Postmodernism refused to recognize the authority of any single style or definition of what art or theology or literature should be. And it collapsed the distinction between high culture and mass or popular culture between art and everyday life. It breaks rules, established rules. It introduces a new era of freedom and sense that anything goes often funny, tongue-in-cheek, or ludicrous, it can be confrontational and controversial, challenging the boundaries of taste, but most crucially, it reflects a self-awareness of style itself. It mixes everything together. It doesn't have to make sense because I'm the one that is creating the meaning and not anybody or anything else. And so this is the society that we are living in and the outgrowth of this is impacting many, many areas of our culture and it's impacting every area of life to the point where people don't want any narrative that tries to provide structure or place things in its proper perspective. I can bring a little bit of the Bible, a little bit of this philosophy, a little bit of that. I create my own meaning. The problem with that is we were never intended to create our own meaning. God gave to us his word and the scripture to direct us into the mission and the kingdom of God. When you start creating your own meaning, you're going to create a world of confusion and chaos. And we see our world in confusion and in chaos. This is why it is so powerful that the word still has all the elements that we need to make sure our life is upon a foundation that is sure. My meaning doesn't come from my emotions. It comes from the word of God. My meaning doesn't come from some philosophy that I build myself. It comes from the word of God. Somebody help me preach here tonight. Praise God. You've, you've come into contact with you're working with people that defy the things that people have known as factual and scientific it doesn't matter anymore because as long as I feel it then it's okay I want to tell you here tonight the word of God goes right against the grain of that and says your life your world is directed by his word that will not return void we're established upon that. I know that was, a, that was a bit there, but the Bible has contained all that stuff in it. It's just a, a re repeating cycle. For in the book of Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25, you read the book of Judges, there was a mess. The people of God were a mess. And there is a phrase that, is, that runs throughout the book of Judges, and it ends. It actually ends with the phrase. 
In Judges chapter 21 and verse number 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, you got a major, major problem. <laughs> because your truth's not my truth. And so I can trample on you if my truth is different from yours. That's situational ethics. Holiness is not about situational ethics. Holiness is about the word of God being the definition for our lives and something that we can build our faith upon. So holiness is not that. And there's, there's, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent here and try to pick out cultural examples right now, but I, I'll just, I'll give you one. There's a, a major, major controversy right now in popular culture about transgenderism, gender dysphoria, and a lot of that kind of stuff. A lot of people that have done all of those surgeries are now coming out, and they're very, very adamant, and they're upset, and they're angry, and they're suing some hospitals and physicians because they feel like they were not proper, properly informed about the decision they were making. Because, because basically, you can create what you feel like is your own gender. That's why Facebook and some of these other social media outlets have got hundreds of genders. And so you can pick and choose. The problem with that is it, it defies biology. You are created male or female. And so now if, if you want to say, well, I'm a male, but I feel like a female, and so I want to create my own gender, that's, that's your prerogative. But you can't tell everybody else that there's not a distinction between male and female. And so now there's this big, big, big conversation because we have created our own truth. And a lot of these people are very disenfranchised because they're making decisions when they're younger. You have bottom surgery. You're going to pay the price for that for the rest of your life. You have top surgery, and then at some point, you want to change your mind and you want to have children. You, you can't do it. And so there's a lot of, lot of confusion, and that is something that is it's a political seems like our current political system is pushing and promoting that. The media is pushing it. Hollywood's pushing that. And it's an illusion. And a lot of people are disenfranchised because now uh, it's becoming very, very apparent that is, uh, that's self-mutilation. And you're not going to end up with what you think you desire or want. And so you're defying something that is, that is, that is basic that has stood the test of time all the way to right now. That we were created distinctly in God's image. He created male and female. But just in the last few years, we can throw that on its head because we create our own identity. It's part of that postmodern thing, situational ethics. And then we can try our very, very best to impress and force that to the very youngest of ages. We're in a cultural war. <laughs> it's absolutely an all-out attack that is based on situational ethics. And this is where we as a church and families and parents have to make sure we do our due diligence and say we believe in the word of God. 
we are going to be kind. We are not going to be ugly. We're not going to throw out slang and words that are hurtful, but we are not backing up from the conviction in the Scripture that God intended for us. So holiness is not situational ethics. I mean, look, <laughs> there's some things that the, the letter killeth and the spirit maketh alive. The spirit is great because it brings life. Sometimes the word cuts. And you need a balance between the two. If all of you've got is the letter that's killing and there's no spirit, that's, that's not a good place to be. If it's all about the spirit that is bringing life, but you've got no correction and no direction and no truth, then that's not a good position to be either. There has to be some balance. Sometimes the word hurts, and I don't like it. You know why I don't like it? Because my human nature doesn't like it, and my human nature could say, well, I'll just do what I want to do. But that's not the way it works. I've got to bring my human nature to the word. James said, look into the word of God and let it be a mirror to you and reflect upon some things that you need to take out of your life because the word of God is speaking to you. That's not a situational ethics thing. That's a true thing. That's a scriptural thing. And so it's not that. It is not human efforts alone either. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 makes this very clear. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's not something that we do. But according to his mercy, <clears throat> he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not personal efforts alone. You can say, oh, I'm going to be holy and I'm going to do it on my own. Problem. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we think we can do things on our own, we are setting ourselves up for failure. There has to be some regeneration and the spirit of God that aids in the effort to be holy. I can't do it on my own. I mean, just look around you. Humanity on its own is an absolute mess. We need something greater than just humanity. We need the anointing and spirit of God, praise God, to mold us and shape us and develop us and make us become what we need to be. I would be a mess and a monster if it was not for the power of God in my life. And you would be too. Thank God for the mercy of God and the anointing of God that develops us, matures us, completes us, and helps us. Amen. So it's not that. It's not human efforts alone. And it's not sacred formality. Professing without possessing. There are traditions that try very, very hard through sacred formality and traditions and structures to feel holy, but it's not that as well. So holiness is important, and God puts us on an elevated plane, a highway to holiness, and he desires that we would be holy like he is holy. And there's some things that it is not. So what, what is it? Well, first of all, Holiness is inward. It's an inward thing. You can't, go the, you can't go in the reverse order because if you go in the reverse order, then it becomes a personal human effort to be holy. It has to start inwardly. And this is why 
a new birth experience is what we preach and teach, and it's what's so powerful because that is the catalyst when the Holy Ghost comes in your life and God washes away your sins and you repent and you change and you turn. There is a new birth that takes place and there's a regeneration. Something is regenerated. Something was lost. This is one of the big questions. What is going on? Who am I? What am I doing here? And what is going on? Something is wrong. Look around. The world's terrible. Wars, rumors of wars. People do terrible, terrible stuff. Uh, human trafficking, uh, enslaving. Human there, there's just all kinds of stuff that humanity is in its, its worst sense, full depravity. When there is a new birth experience and there is a transformation in your life, there's a regeneration. There's a regeneration of something that was lost, and that was that connection to God. This, this, is, <laughs> this is why when you ask somebody that gets the Holy Ghost, how does that feel? Man, I've, I've never felt anything like this before. Why? There's a regeneration. There's a connection with God. It's not a tradition thing. It's not a religious thing because you can go to churches that have formality, and it's not a personal thing because you can try, but when God fills you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, he regenerates your spirit and starts connecting with you, and stuff starts happening on the inside of you. Anybody thankful for a new birth experience? Praise God. Amen. It's God's nature that is stirred and reborn. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 4 tells us this. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What are you partakers of? The divine nature. And so God, when he fills us with his spirit, he allows us to take part of his divine nature. So, I mean, we were going through life on our own nature, our own human nature, doing stuff that uh, led us down a pathway of destruction and addiction and all kinds of stuff. And then when God filled us with his spirit, all of a sudden there's something <clears throat> else that is work at work in our life. It's a regeneration that takes place. It's a connection to his divine spirit that gives us the ability from the inside to start making decisions that we would never have been able to make on the outside. Praise God. That's what God does. He gives us the ability on the inside. This was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? Listen, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. How am I going to do that? Because I'm going to do something on the inside of your heart. This is why the law was a schoolmaster. It had a lot of the externals. It told you what to do, how to do it, how to come, religious formality, offer sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. They had a whole religious system but what it didn't allow you to do is work on the internal components of your heart. So you could actually be doing the system, and yet your heart was far from God. And so God, through a prophet, said, there's coming a day 
When it's not just going to be about rules here, but I'm going to put the Holy Ghost in you, and the Holy Ghost in you is going to be an internal thing that helps you make the decisions that you need to make in your life, externally and outwardly. So holiness is something that is internal. It is spiritual. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A true heart and full assurance of faith. God is doing something internally in my life. Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is a transformation that takes place by his mercy and his spirit does an inward work. Holiness is an inward work. It is not situational ethics. It is not religious formality and it is not self-will. But it is a powerful spiritual experience where the anointing and power of God consumes you from the inside out. And so that's where we can go next. If holiness is inward, it is also outward. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1 says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Highway to holiness. What are we supposed to be doing? Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. Corinthian church had some major, major problems. A lot of factions. He had to write several letters to them to try to straighten stuff out. And when he got it all straightened out, I mean, there were some saying, well, I was baptized with this person. I was baptized with that person. They had factions. They couldn't even do the communion service right. They were bringing their own food and eating. Some ate. Some didn't have anything. It was a mess. And so Paul had to go in and establish some kind of order and structure. And then he gives to them this word of encouragement. He said, we are in the business of perfecting holiness in the fear of God because we have these promises. And so we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. We need to put off some things. Let the Holy Ghost on the inside make its way on the outside. So holiness is also outward. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So holiness is something that happens on the inside, but there's also outward manifestations of God's holiness. <clears throat> and apparently this is very, very important because in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 14, it says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So if we cannot even see God without it, it is something that should be very, very significant and important to us. And when we say holiness, what are we talking about? It's an inward and an outward. Sometimes people will read this verse and they'll use it just for the outward stuff. Uh, okay, you, you, you can do yourself some major disservice if you, only, if, you, if you don't have these in balance. 
God's doing something on the inside, and he's working on the outside. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. Okay. <laughs> I got, okay. Jesus, okay. Right. It's a cute little song, but it's a powerful revelation. It's both. And so they have to be in balance. And this scripture tells us that it is significant and it is important. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. He's talking about the church and the people in it. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know what he's coming back for? He's coming back with this kind of church that has made herself ready. She is without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. She is holy. She is on the highway of holiness. She is without blemish, and she is the apple of God's eye. You think you're insignificant? You're absolutely not insignificant because God has got his eye on you. You say on me? Yes, on you, and you and you and you and you because all of us make up what is called the church and Jesus Christ is coming back for a church that is holy. Amen. Now Jesus gave to us probably the best illustration of this in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25. He was constantly in conflict with the Pharisees, let me just, uh, oh, I'm running out of time. Let me just um, explain something here real quick. You have 400 years of intertestamental period, which is 400 years of silence. When you end with Malachi and then you come to Matthew, you got 400 years where there is no prophetic voice until John the Baptist. And so 400 years during that intertestamental period, there's a lot of Jewish history that happens. We can read some of this if, if the, the book of Maccabees and what have you has some history that tells us of the rise and falls of different Jewish dynasties and the people that, is, that are surrounding them. Because there is no prophetic voice, there is an intense, an intense focus on the scripture. Because they have no prophetic voice, they only have the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And so they intensely focus on the Hebrew scriptures, and they make trying to figure them out and trying to ascertain exactly what do some of the Old Testament scriptures mean. They created another book, the Talmud and the Mishnah of traditions, and they had rabbis that would speak on these things. And so the rabbis became very, very prominent. That's why you see rabbis in Jesus' day, because they were authority of how the word was supposed to be interpreted. And then, because of that, you had the rise of religious groups, and that's why we get the Pharisees, and we get the Sadducees, and we get the rabbis, because they were so, now this is going to seem really odd, but they were so focused on Scripture that they made the Scripture and the study of it God, so that they missed when God manifest in the flesh came to them. They were so hyper-focused on the Word that they, be, they made the Word of no effect. And Jesus even says that, you make the Word of no effect. Why? Because you got all these rules, but your heart is far, far from me. See, Jesus, he, <laughs> he brought the balance between the internal and the external. He brought it together, and he, he constantly had conflict with the Pharisees over these kinds of things. And so he talks to them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. 
Very, very harsh language, but he illustrates. He said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but, are, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Wow, so he uses this illustration of cups and platters and the graveyard. And he said, you're like a, you're like a cup that on the outside, you appear to everybody to be all together and white and clean, but on the inside, you're full of scummy stuff. Have you ever left stuff in a cup for a period of time and stuff starts growing out of it? That's what Jesus was saying. You, I mean, on the outside, you look really, really good, but you peek in there, and there's hairballs growing out of it, and all kinds of stuff coming out of it. So you need to first clean the, clean the inside out and then make sure the outside is clean because you've got it backwards. And then he used these sepulchers in, in uh, Jerusalem, especially if you're up in the Temple Mount area, you're looking down across the Kidron Valley and you can see Jerusalem. There are a lot of, of tombs, tombs, and they're, they're all white. They're very, they're am amazingly white blinding white. And he was using that ancient practice of using that white stone on the outside. Looks really good, but what's on the inside? Full of dead men's bones and corruption and decay and worms and all kinds of stuff. And so he used that illustration to show them how holiness should be exemplified. Should be something that you take care of on the inside I mean, you're really good at it because you're not committing adultery, but you got so much adultery on the inside of your heart, and yet you think that you're pious and righteous. And Jesus would say, you got, you got a problem. You got to take care of the inside. You got to get the inside right. And you got to solve that problem and let it work to the outside. This is why the new birth experience is so important and necessary. This is why Jesus went to Calvary and died for it because he recognized there was a disconnect between the heart and the action. And the spirit of God is supposed to bring those things back together again. The only way you can be holy is if the Holy Ghost is operating in your life and it's on the inside and your heart is right, your spirit is right, and you start making changes outwardly. That's the way holiness is supposed to work. And so Jesus used this example. What does holiness do? We're, we're coming quickly to a conclusion. The musicians can come if you would. Holiness frees us from a lot of stuff. See, the highway is elevated. Nowadays, there's engineering to make sure the highways are elevated so that there's runoff and, and traffic flow and everything else is in proper context. But even in ancient of days, there was a highway that was elevated. And so that highway to holiness does some things for the traveler. What does it do? It frees us from the chains of hatred, which is a lack of love. 
Holiness does that. It, it frees us from the chains of bitterness or unforgiveness. What does that? Holiness can do that. Chains of pride. Scripture said pride goeth before destruction. Holiness frees us from the chains of pride. Chains of jealousy. Cruel as the grave. The fear of being replaced. Holiness frees us from chains of jealousy. Chains of malice. What is that? Injuring others for personal gratification or revenge. It frees us from the chains of malice. Chains of lust. Lust that can never be satisfied. People are addicted to their own lust. And those lusts will never be satisfied. And you will constantly pursue after those things, hoping that at some point you will get to the end of the rainbow. And it will never happen because lusts are never satisfied. Holiness frees us from the chains of lust. Frees us from the chains of wrath. A wise man said, anger resteth in the bosom of fools. We can get so caught up in our own anger. But holiness frees us from the chains of wrath. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22, as we stand together tonight, says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What is accomplished with holiness? Everlasting life and fruit unto holiness. Freed from the chains of all these things. Praise God. I want to be holy before the Lord. I recognize, man, I got work to do, but I certainly want God to do an internal work in my heart and life. And that work be so profound and transforming that it has effect on the outside. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 16 says, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? Amen. I am the temple of God. And this scripture said, I'm a holy temple. Praise God. That needs to be our prayer tonight. God, make me holy. Praise God. Help me to be on the highway to holiness, an elevated place where you have separated me and you have dedicated me to the work of God. I wonder if you could lift up your hands tonight in just a simple prayer. Let's pray this prayer. God, make me to be holy. Make my temple to be holy and right. Praise God.
what you 